Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. We Have Ways of Making You Talk presents One Man's Window, an illustrated account of 10 weeks of war, Malta, April 13th to June 21st, 1942, by Dennis Barnum. Chapter 9, The Silver Cord. It is now afternoon. The dreaded Hugh and I are on our way over to St Paul's Bay to see the CO. I look sideways at this sandy-haired Rhodesian flight lieutenant marching alongside me, rolling to and fro with his lengthy khaki shorts flapping about his knees. We have already passed through the village, and if we followed the directions correctly, this next house on the right, called Palestrina, should be the pilot's rest camp. After the blinding sunshine, the cool darkness of the narrow hallway is most refreshing, but is this the house? Idly I turn the pages of a suggestions book on the hall table. It is suggested that the number on the house opposite be removed forthwith. Glancing back across the road, I read the number, for it is very distinct. 109, undoubtedly the camp for resting pilots. We have found the CO, looking very much better, but the air raid warning sounded and he is leading us across the descending lawn at the back of the house, through a trellised arbour of honeysuckle, down some steep steps onto a grass terrace commanding a magnificent view of the bay. At our feet there is a rocky ravine in deep shadow with trees growing the other side of it. We look down over the treetops, onto the vast stretch of blue water encircled with yellow hills, with the mouth of the bay away on our right. At the narrow entrance, which gives us a framed view of the wide Mediterranean beyond, there is the flat island where St Paul was shipwrecked in the tempest. With the first formation of JU-88s diving straight at us, and now turning fiercely to drop their bombs beyond the hilltops, on the far side of the bay, it is difficult to imagine these blue skies darkly overcast with a cloud, to visualise the scene of driving rain and spray from the boisterous curling seas, obscuring the headlands as St Paul's ship rode the storm. Yet, even as the shell bursts defile the blue sky above us, following a second wave of German bombers inland, and as I crouch down as two of the Stukas peer away from the main stream, diving at us and releasing their bombs into St Paul's village, it seemed to me quite natural for St Paul and his companions, straining their eyes for a sight of land, to describe this as a place where two seas meet. Just over there, the other side of the moving water, is the actual spot where they ran the ship aground, and the forepart stuck fast and remained unmovable, but the hinder part was broken with the violence of the waves. Just above that spot, where fragments of St Paul's boat may still be lying, where they all escaped safe to land, and where, as they wrote, the barbarous people showed us no little kindness, for they kindled a fire and received us every one. Just above it, in the blue sky, a third formation of bombers is edging into its dive towards a small Maltese harbour. Look out, 109s! Two black machines, closely followed by two more, turn fiercely over our treetops and twist away over St Paul's Island. There are five machines arching there, and one is a hurricane, one of our own aircraft, alone and fighting desperately. Oh, well done. The enemy seemed to slacken for a moment, their sharp-winged Messerschmitts drawing out to sea a little. The hurricane, seizing the opportunity, dives into the cover of the hills. As it disappears from sight below the hill crests, there's a sharp burst of gunfire from the ground. From the ground? The ground? It was our own guns firing. Our own guns! With terrible anxiety, I watch the hurricane reappear. Its huge shape lifts over the skyline with part of its left wing breaking away. 
Uncontrollable, it plunges into the rocks. An exploding crimson flame scars the hill, while a smaller black shape, trailing blue smoke, bounces onward, down, down, down towards the water. There, at the water's edge, a second fire bursts out. A hurricane or a Messerschmitt? calls the squadron leader, running towards us along the terrace. A hurricane, I reply. That's what I thought, he mutters. The fire, highest on the hillside, has now died down, but smoke still oozes from the second. By borrowing the squadron leader's field glasses, which flatten the distant slope and bring it sharply nearer, I examine the wreckage. There is some movement high up in the circular frame. Lifting the glasses, I can make out several figures, urgently leaping downwards from rock to rock. Even from this distance, it is obvious that these khaki figures are well aware of what they have done. I lower the glasses and hand them back. None of us says a word. Twenty minutes later, a sudden wail, a Maltese barkeeper giving the all-clear on his hand siren. The sea and the sky remain emotionless blue. The distant hillside glitters in saffron yellow, with smoke drifting away from it. There's a sound of footsteps approaching on the flagstone path from the lawn. Three army officers in smart uniforms emerge from the honeysuckle archway, descend the steps, and the captain, who leads them, holds something towards me. A burnt fragment of khaki battle dress and some charred pieces of paper are thrust into my hands. They were all we could get from the hurricane pilot, he says. He was burned about the head and he had a cannon shell through his pelvis. In bewilderment, I look down at the khaki fragment. In the centre of it, simple, undamaged and without adornment of medals, is the brevet of RAF wings. The papers appear to be a letter to his wife or girlfriend, while on another scorched and brittle envelope I can read his name and rank of flight sergeant quite clearly. Hugh, producing a scissors, takes these intimacies from me. He cuts the brown fire traces from the wings and puts them in an envelope into his pocket. He adds the fringe of burnt material to the other papers and before I can stop him, hurls them over into the deep ravine. I stare down into the darkness. The captain is talking to the CO. In fact, the whole party with Hugh following is climbing back up the steps towards the house. As they pass out of sight, I hear the captain's voice. What do you want us to do with the body? Good luck, Flight Sergeant, I whisper inwardly. The sun glares down from the empty sky. The trees do not move. The perfume of the honeysuckle is sickly sweet in the warm air. The other squadron leader stands motionless, still gazing out at the distant hills. Brilliant flowers are growing in the grass to the very brink of the dark ravine. My fumbling thought is in the presence of great mysteries. The flight sergeant has gone, yet he was a human being like myself. If something of him has gone out into the world of spirit, such a part must have been with him yesterday as he walked the island paths. We all have the same constitution, so what is this inner part of me by which I send a blessing to him without words, this strange sensitivity close to my heart? In so far as I think deeply and love deeply, it may be with the eternal part of my nature that does not die. My physical body is fixed on this hillside in time and space. The ground is hard under my right foot when I stamp. I feel pain as I pinch myself. Even if I survive tomorrow's flying, I know that there will be another ordeal and another and another. My own body may soon be entangled in burning wreckage. It may be pulped, a bloody mess, a broken thing. Other people will say, what do you want us to do with the body? But what of the inner life that does not die? Although I shamefully neglect it, I feel that joy after death, or life after death, is in proportion to the degree in which we love God, his creatures and his creation, in proportion to the degree in which we experience this fuller life while we are here still on earth, in proportion to our obedience. I feel that we are here to grow the wings of love, and that when the ugly moment comes when our bodies are broken and smashed, we soar out joyously into new life. Yet how are we to lead the good life, to love in a world gone mad with war? My whole being is obsessed by war and all my actions too. 
If I am hit while flying with my mind focused on tactics, combat and deflection shooting, will I be granted a moment of silent communion before my aircraft strikes the ground? The squadron leader, having lowered his field glasses, is walking slowly towards me. I can't just stand here and stare at him. What happened to you, sir? You were shot down like our CO. Yes, I was shot down. I came out of hospital just over a week ago. Since then, I've been staying here. Delightful, isn't it? Yes, but tell me something, please. You know those strange moments when flying, when there's a sudden emergency? Did you ever find that you had changed gear in time? Have you suddenly found yourself on a different timescale, thinking and feeling so fast that the speed of normal life appeared in slow motion to you? I think most of us feel like that in an emergency. Why? Well, you've been shot down. Did you ever find this experience carried a stage further? Did you ever find yourself outside your own body looking back at it? Yes, he eventually replied. It's strange that you should ask that. He pauses again. He seems reluctant to continue. I think he realises from my urgency that I'm earnestly seeking for something. Perhaps he's on his guard against shooting a line, a cursed inhibition that always prevents us learning from someone else's experience in the RAF. After a bang with 109s, he continues slowly, I think my tail was falling off, but I don't quite know. I had some control and I tried to bring the plane down. I was approaching the main runway at Looker from the Safi end when she started to dive. It got steeper and steeper, but I couldn't stop it. I watched a ravine with a stone wall on top coming up to meet me. It was no good. The controls didn't answer. I gave up. Suddenly, I was outside the aeroplane watching the whole thing happening. The aeroplane with my body inside it went on diving, but it didn't hit the ravine. First, it crumpled and bounced on a great angle of rock, and I watched my body being tossed about. Then it went sideways in slow motion through a wall, somersaulting on its broken wing across a small field and finally burrowing into another wall under some trees. It didn't catch fire, although I expected flames. My body looked like a discarded marionette entangled with the wreckage. I watched the blood wagon arrive and I watched them hack me out. I was outside myself until long after my body reached the hospital. I didn't go back until halfway through the operation. A JU-88 reconnaissance plane is approaching from high up over the sea. The squadron leader climbs the steps into the shadow of the Honeysuckle Arbor and I join him in the hiding place as the peering photographic eye passes across above us. What happened to him is the same as what happened to me on my first flight, only he was outside for very much longer. It's the moment of resigning oneself to death that seems to trigger off this kind of experience. Is it the spirit's ultimate association with the material world? In this moment of detachment, do we have a chance to think on God once again? Is such a moment prolonged after we have died? Yet while we live, staring back at ourselves, we must be attached to our body in some invisible way. Yes, the silver cord. The lovely verses from Ecclesiastes float into my mind with new meaning. When the silver cord be loosed, or the golden bowl be broken, or the pitcher broken at the fountain, then shall the body return to the dust, and the spirit return to God who gave it. This morning, despite my fear of air battle, I felt confident about my tactics. I was sure that I'd be able to deliver our American pilot called Tilly and warrant officer Belch, who I was taking up for their first multi-trip, accurately into the bomber stream, that we'd be able to shoot down several enemy planes and that I'd get them safely out again. I had led them steeply up into the sun and was diving back when it happened. Great spurts of oil came splashing back over my windscreen and flooding all over the side panels and hood. It grew darker and darker inside my cockpit. Then the oil froze in solid black waves. Couldn't see out. Tried opening the hood. It ran an inch, then jammed. Tried to get Tilly or Belch to take over. Not their fault they couldn't hear me. My transmitter went faulty. Could hear Woody all right as I dived. Couldn't tell him I was in trouble. Big jobs on Takali, he called. By the time I found Takali, through a small gap in the oil, nothing but dust. 
Grand Harbour, called Woody. Couldn't find the harbour in time. How far now? Managed to get a brief glimpse of the German bombers. Could no longer see them as I turned. Charged blindly on. Got amongst them all right. 88s first. Then 109s. Tried to make myself a difficult target. Twisted and turned. Nearly collided with a 109. Prayed fiercely. Seemed to be two people. The pilot flinging my spit for about. Some other impersonal awareness of what was happening. A brief fiery glimpse as a 109 went down in flames. The battle seemed to go on for hours. Finally, when I landed my plane back at Luca, poor Chiefy came and stared at it. Not many bullet holes. During lunch at Luca, there was another raid. The mess was straddled by bombs. As the guardroom collapsed on top of our bus, I am late in getting over to St Paul's Bay for my second visit. Well done, Tilly. I've left him over at the aerodrome, hunting for the intelligence officer, trying to get his victory confirmed, for he shot down the 109, said it was sitting on a Spitfire's tail. It may have been sitting on Belcher's tail, or perhaps mine. I didn't see much of the action. Here at St Paul's Bay, I walk across the lawn at the back of the house. I descend the steps by the honeysuckle, and now beside the ravine so dark and deep, I walk the whole length of the wide terrace, and follow the path downwards into the cool dark shadow of the trees. All around me, in the subfusk light, knuckled tree roots clasp the rocks, while their trunks, twisting upwards, branch out over my head into a translucent fan, vaulting of green leaves. I walk slowly, but all too soon I re-emerge into hot sunlight radiant from a cobalt sky. Still going down, across a precipitous slope of sun-scorched grass, making my way carefully, for if I slipped I would plunge headlong into the motionless water about a hundred feet below. Now by the safety of a rock wall, I look out over the blue bay towards the lemon-yellow hills on the far shore. Passing through a gap in the wall, I descend a flight of stairs towards a concrete platform built only a few inches above the lapping water. There are several pilots down there, stretched out on white towels in their bathing costumes. In hot, sleepy fashion, they glance up at me as I approach. Most are strangers, but two familiar figures, the CO and the dreaded Hugh, roll on their sides and wave a greeting. After telling them that I've initiated the last of my pilots and that Tilly has destroyed a 109, I look around this silent, restful place, partly shadowed as it is by the cliff. How I'd love to bathe. The transparent water looks so cool and clean. I must bathe, for I haven't been fully immersed in water since I left the aircraft carrier. My hair is thick with dust, my clothes are sticking to me, but I have no bathing costume. I would not like to offend the Maltese, but no, this place is not really overlooked. The stranger officers tell me they don't object, so I peel off my clothes and leap to the water's edge. My watch! I nearly forgot it in this new delight of refreshing nakedness. Once again I stare down into the crystal blue world, rippling with sheets of light at the rocks below the surface swayingly enfolded by green and vermilion. Is it really deep enough, I ask? It's ten feet there, smiles the CO. Further out the surface of the bay is deep blue. St Paul's tiny island, low against the sea in the distance, is gay yellow, dappled with the palest of violet shadows. Beyond that is the firm horizon. I feel joyous and newly born, as Adam must have felt in Eden air, so I take a deep breath and dive in. The water is icy, but I'm gliding downwards with my eyes wide open, watching the changing patterns of sunlight. I roll over and over as I rise to the surface, then splash lustily with my feet beating up and down in the churned white water. Tiring quickly, I swim out to sea instead. I'm stung by a jellyfish. The sudden searing pain of a narrow red hot iron across the width of my back astonishes me. It continues to burn, despite the water so freezingly delicious. Swimming around, the pain gradually passes away and finally, growing happily exhausted, I make for the shore. Standing up by a tall rock, with the sun burning the salty drops of seawater from my shoulders, I look down at my body, as yet unmutilated by war. I'm astonishingly slim. 
half starved, I suppose. My tapering, sunburnt legs turn blue underwater and my feet appear to float above the rocky pebbles. Feeling vividly alive, I climb out and rub myself briskly with a towel. Air aid warning's gone, CO tells me. What does it matter? We can watch from here. 109's machine gunned us this morning. We don't want to get caught again. Surely not here. But Hugh's pointing out the chips in the rock and some flattened bullets lying on the concrete. I dress, but it seems a pity to climb the steps and crawl up the steep hillside. Yet that's what we are doing, our breaths quick and urgent from the exertion. The 109s are already murmuring above us. In the shadow of the trees, the CO suggests that we all go into St Paul's village and have a really large fish supper in a bar restaurant that has been recommended to him. Emerging onto the terrace, I'm not surprised to see Max, Scotty and Babyface, for they said they might come over. They're staring up at the sky and, glimpsing us, they point out two waves of enemy bombers coming in from the north. Smoke splashed by anti-aircraft fire, about 40 bombers are passing above us and heading inland towards the aerodromes. There is no sign of the three or four fighters that the island could muster in defence. Woody may be holding them on the ground again. It is with unspoken anxiety for our few machines that our large party, after climbing up to the house, sets off down the road towards the village. During our ten minutes walk, we've watched the 109 sweeping the sky in twos, fours and eights, with the sound of others higher up. But now as we arrive at the small harbour, with its angular jetties sticking out into the bay, we are greeted by a Maltese whirling the hand of the siren for the all clear. The aerodromes may be a shambles, but, still indulging our afternoon off from war, we enter the restaurant and eat down a draught of fiery sherry. The CO searches out the cook, and having organised six plump fish to be ready at seven o'clock, turns to us with the suggestion of visiting other taverns for drinks while we wait. The others agree, but I'm staying here. I've got to fly again tomorrow, and the view over the bay is so beautiful. Alone now, with another glass of sherry at my elbow, I've seated myself on a low wall close to the harbour entrance. The sherry, a blend of licorice and vinegar, is really rather horrid, but the silence is real refreshment with the lap of water, the quiet stealth of the fisherman manoeuvring his red and green gondola boat, and catching crabs that I can see scurrying along the bottom the great blobs of silver reflecting from the descending sun, the village foreground, the romantic castle high up on the clifftop behind it, and the whole sky suffused with light as in a painting by Turner. I tried to catch something of its mood in my drawing. All too soon it's seven o'clock, the others have returned, the fish is ready for us, and we enter a back room to take our places at a wide rectangular table. I've managed to get a seat close to the open door through which I can watch the water, the hillside, and the rapidly changing effects, for I seem to be tied to their quietude. My companion pilots, however, are laughing and full of fun. I join the noise and chatter as best as I can, but I am overwhelmed by the silence beyond the door. The sun has gone down. The hill, with its wonderful buildings, gorgeous with colour, is dark against the sky. The sky is a quiet mother of pearl, and the gently moving water is still an unaccountable royal blue. Although the buildings are grey-brown, huddled into the dark indigo hillside, Each house has turned one pale face towards the light to catch the last blessing of the day. That's it for today. We'll be heading back to the heat of Malta soon. If you're enjoying this audiobook, you might be interested to know that we have nine free audiobooks on our members' site. It's £6 a month to join, or $7.50 in the US, but for that you get a weekly live show, lots of discussions with like-minded people, and all those free audiobooks. You can join by going to patreon.com slash wehaveways. That's patreon, spelt P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com slash wehaveways. More of One Man's Window, coming soon.
I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kaye, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy, and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts.